Right. Well, if you have your Bibles tonight, go ahead and turn to First Kings again, First Kings chapter fifteen. Tonight we'll be looking at verses nine through twenty-four. <clears throat> you remember last week we looked at verses uh, one through eight. Well, we started back in chapter fourteen, but we went through verse eight in chapter fifteen. And the name of the lesson, or the title of the lesson last week, was "Like Father, Like Son." We saw where Rehoboam and his son Abijam, uh, where the apple didn't t- fall too far from the tree. Well, tonight the title of the lesson is Like Father, Not Like Son. And we're going to see where things change a little bit. Last week we saw how sin carries over to the next generation with Abijam, which again was Rehoboam's son, and really he became more wicked than his father was. And we wondered if that cycle of depravity and sin was ever going to be broken or if it was just going to continue on uh, to generation after generation after generation. Well, in the text today we're going to see that the Holy Spirit can, will, and does intervene and does a powerful work of grace in the lives of people, in the lives of people's family members. Even though we don't deserve it, He'll intervene and He will change things. He will extend God's grace to our lives. And what we see here tonight is a notable example of that. We see God intervening with grace in the story of Abijam's son, and his name is King Asa. It says in verses 9 and 10, that in the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa, became king over Judah. And he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. Now, depending on what translation you have, the next verse might read a little different. It says... In the New King James Version, which I'm reading out of, his grandmother's name was Zemachah, the granddaughter of Abishalom. Now, every other version says, including the King James Version, the ESV, the New American Standard, says his mother's name was Micah. Anybody have mother in there? Okay. That's going to be important here in just a second, so just keep that in mind. So, humanly speaking... There was really a little reason to expect that Asa would be faithful to God. I mean, his grandfather wasn't. His father wasn't. If you'll remember, his grandfather was King Rehoboam, remember? And he divided the kingdom and led his people into gross idolatry. And then uh, his father, Abijam, wasn't any better. The Bible says he walked in the same manner as, of his, fa- as his father did. Uh, really, he was probably even worse. So when Asa took the throne, the people around him probably thought that this was just going to be another case of like father, like son, right? Just like Rehoboam and just like Abijam. Well, <clears throat> there's another reason why Asa was an unlikely candidate for, God, uh, for godliness. Not just because his father was ungodly and because his grandfather was ungodly. And this is where that grandmother-mother thing comes in. His birth seems to have been the result of an incestuous relationship. Because it seems like that Micah was both Abijam's mother and Asa's mother. And according to the Old Testament law, that sin was punishable by death. Now, it would be easy to think that Asa, because of this, would never amount to anything, right? And I think sometimes we're tempted to think that of other people. We may even be tempted to think that of ourselves, you know, if we come from a line uh, from a line of ungodly people, we may be tempted to think that cycle's never going to be broken. But Asa 
is a prime example of the grace of God and how the grace of God can change people. Asa turned out to be one of the few good kings of Judah. Even though his grandfather was ungodly, even though his father, even though it it appears like that he was born of incest. Now, it's possible that that was his grandmother because we see in the Bible where it refers even to King Asa as... uh, uh, that his father was David, right? It, talks, it speaks of lineage. And David wasn't really his father, but he was from the line of David. And so it's possible that it's saying that's his mother because he's from the line of that woman. But you, don't, you rarely see that when it's talking about a woman in the Bible, a grandmother being called a mother. I believe that this was an incestuous relationship, and his father had relations with his own mother and had Asa. Nevertheless, it really seems unlikely that he would have turned out to be godly. Well, the Bible says like his great-grandfather David, Asa had a heart for the worship of the one true God. He turned out to be a good king of Judah. It says in verses 11 through 12, Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did his father David. And he banished the perverted persons from the land and removed all the idols that his father had made. So he was interested in the true worship of God, just like David was. And he put an end to the worship of these false gods. And he put an end to these depraved practices of this Canaanite religion that was going on in that land. And really, he brought spiritual reformation to the people of God. How do we explain that? How did it go from ungodly Rehoboam to even more ungodly Abijam to just bam, all of a sudden, Asa is godly? Abijam didn't teach him to be godly. Abijam's wife didn't teach him to be godly. What happened? How do we explain this transformation? The only explanation is the grace of God. God intervened in his life. God came to him and called him, and Asa said yes to God. God extended His grace to him. God had every reason to abandon this family. Every reason. But God refused to do that. God has every, had every reason to abandon me. God have, had every reason to abandon each and every single one of us. But what did He do? He extended His grace to us. Amen. He came to us... Uh, Via the Holy Spirit, He convicted our hearts and He offered us the free gift of salvation. And none of us deserved it. I'm glad we've got a God that intervenes with grace, aren't you? Amen. So this gives us hope. It gives us hope for the gracious work of God in our own lives. It gives us hope for the gracious work of God in the lives of our families. We've all got family members who are not saved. We've all got family members who have come from a bad line, who their uh, father was horrible and their grandfather was horrible. But guess what? That doesn't mean they have to be horrible. And if we share the Lord Jesus Christ with them, we don't know. They might be saved. They might say yes to the grace of God. It's our job to offer it to them. God can step in at any time with His power to heal and with His power to save and with His power to transform their lives. And so knowing that, That should encourage us to pray for God's grace to be extended to people, for God's grace to be extended to ourselves, for God's grace to be extended to our family, to our children. We should pray for hearts that are totally devoted to God. We should pray for hearts that tear down these idols in our lives. We should pray for hearts that remove anything that is standing in the way of complete, total devotion to God. 
We should pray for that, knowing that God is able to do that. When we do that, though, we need to understand that total devotion to the Lord can be very costly. Don't think it won't cost us anything. Jesus taught that to His disciples. He plainly told that to them in Luke chapter 14, verses 26 through 27 and verse 33. He said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, is Jesus, does he mean literally you've got to hate your mom and daddy and all this stuff? He doesn't literally mean you're supposed to hate them. What he's saying is your love for him in comparison to love for anything else should be much greater. Amen. That's what he's saying. That's and he's saying it's going to cost us something. To be his, a total, a true, completely, uh, completely dedicated disciple. And King Asa, he knew that. He had counted the cost, and he not only counted the cost, he also paid the price. You see, his decision to follow God shows us the cost of discipleship in at least two areas. The first area is personal relationships, and the second area is financial st- uh, stewardship. Part of the price that Asa paid was in his family relationships. Notice in verse 13 that in addition to tearing down those idols, it says he also removed Micah, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made an uh, obscene image of Asherah. And Asa cut down her obscene image and burn it by the brook Kidron. Now at that time, the queen mother in that culture, as she was called, had a prominent cultural and political role in ancient society. In many cases, her power was second only to the king. So she was more than likely second in command to Asa. She had spiritual influence over the royal household and she had spiritual influence over, uh, over the public. And so she had a prime important position. And Asa's mother, Micah here, said, it says she had erected an image to Asherah. And that was a vulgar Canaanite sex goddess is what that was. It was a vulgar statue. Now, remember, this is Asa's mama we're talking about here. At least his grandma. And he must have been under severe personal and public pressure to just let this go. To let it go unpunished. I mean, this is his mama, right? I mean, how could he have his own mother removed from this prominent position? But Asa honored God. He didn't care if it was his mother or if it was his grandmother. He honored God and he removed her from that position and he tore down that idol she had erected and burn it to ashes. We should follow that example. We should follow Asa's example in putting our commitment to God ahead of personal relationships. We shouldn't let family and friends get in the way of our commitment to Christ. It should never happen. And listen, if you get serious, really serious, about living for the Lord Jesus Christ, there's going to be times when your love for Him is going to cost you personal relationships. It's going to happen. It may happen when we disprove of somebody's sexual orientation. I know family members who uh, have problems and 
who have gotten mad at each other because one family member stood for what the Word of God said about homosexuality, and they've somebody in their family practicing homosexuality, and so they get mad. But we have to stand up. Do we love them? Yes, but we have to stand up for what the Word of God says. Amen. Listen, we didn't make up this Word of God. I mean, if man would have made this up, homosexuality would be okay. There would be a lot of things that would be okay. We didn't make it up. We, but we have to stand on it. We do it in love. But we stand up for what the Word of God says. It may come in, uh, when we decline to participate in some activities that our friends participate in. You see, when you get serious about living for the Lord, there's some things that you're just not going to be comfortable doing anymore that your friends may still want you to participate in. And so the list could go on and on and on, but whatever the case, Jesus must always come first, even if it costs us a relationship. But you know, a lot of times, when you stand up for what's right, and somebody gets mad at you, usually there's a time when they're going to get so deep into it, and they're going to see you living for the Lord Jesus Christ, they're going to come back around and ask you how you do it. And that's going to give you a great chance to witness to them. Amen. A lot of times it happens like that. So always put Christ first. But another price that we see here that we must pay to follow Jesus Christ is in our financial stewardship. You see, as one part of our commitment to Christ, we all know this, we should give regular tithes and offerings right to the work of God to the church, to His kingdom. And we see another good example of Asa in this aspect as well in verse 15. It says, He also brought into the house of the Lord the things which His Father had dedicated and the things which He Himself had dedicated, silver and gold and utensils. Now remember that Asa's grandfather was Rehoboam. And remember, he suffered loss of treasure, right? He had treasure taken away from him. And remember that God had sent Shishak Back in uh, verse, uh, chapter 14, verses 25 through 26, he had sent Shishak from Egypt to plunder all the treasures of Jerusalem because of Rehoboam's idolatry. He lost it all. But King Asa took the gold of his father Abijam and he brought it back into the temple for the public worship of God. And not only that, he added to it. He took what he had and gave he added his own costly gifts of silver and gold. And by offering his treasure to the Lord, Asa was able to uh, restore the temple's tarnished image. And doing that brought glory to God. When he gave to that and uh, made that temple, I guess you could say rich again, uh, filled it full of treasures again, that brought glory to God. Took the tarnish off the temple. So giving money is always an act of worship. We've discussed that the last two Sundays. That is an act of worship. And it's really an indicator of whether or not we're giving our whole selves to God as a living sacrifice. See, whenever we give, we're following in the footsteps of King Asa. But more importantly than that, we're giving thanks and we're bringing glory to King Jesus, the one that's greater than Asa, the one who gave his very life for us. Now, when we give our tithes and offerings, we are giving thanksgiving and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So the Bible, it commends King Asa for, for paying the price to bring reformation to the people of God. And it tells us King Asa is a good king, a godly man, but we shouldn't think that he's a perfect man. 
Okay, because he's not. He's not a perfect king. And the Bible openly admits that. The Bible tells us about some of his failings. And when we see these failings that we're about to look at here, I want, I want us to be reminded that we have failings too. We may even have some of the same ones that he has. We, ha- we all have our own spiritual struggles. Now, although it's true that Asa ended this idolatry, right? He tore down these idols. But he did not insist that everyone should go to Jerusalem for public worship as God commanded. He didn't go all the way. Instead, it says in verse 14 that the high places were not removed. Now, why does that matter? What's the significance of that? Because remember, the people at Jerusalem, uh, the temple at Jerusalem was set apart as the place of worship, right? It was set apart as the one place on earth that God established for proper worship of himself. That was where they were to go to worship. So Asa's failure to take down these high places really left his uh, reformation incomplete. He, uh, he went a long ways. He did some good things, but he did not go all the way for the Lord. And so even if these people served God at those places instead of serving idols at those places, it was still incomplete obedience to God. It was not true and complete worship, and so it wasn't totally pleasing to God. So Asa, although he did many good things, he was not perfect in his worship. Asa also failed to honor God fully in his political relationships. We see this in the great conflict that he had in his, during his reign. He had this ongoing civil war with the northern kingdom just like his father did. According to verses 16 and verse 32, they both say this, that there was war between Asa and Baasha, <coughs> king of Israel, all of their days. Now Baasha, he's the king of the northern kingdom now, right? The one that Jeroboam was the king of. And this guy really posed a serious threat to Asa in the southern kingdom of Judah. We see it in verse 17. It says, And Baasha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might let none go out or come in to Asa, king in Judah. So basically what this Baasha guy was doing was building a blockade, keeping people from going in and out of Judah and trading and buying and selling, and all these different things that you had to do to live. Uh, He was performing this blockade. Now, Ramah was only a few miles north of Jerusalem, and so building this city was keeping uh, them from having the supplies they needed, from being able to do business the way they wanted to do it. Now, from a political perspective, a purely political perspective, uh, the way Asa dealt with this seemed right. It seemed wise, Israel was bigger than Judah, right? There was ten tribes in Israel and two for Judah, right? So Israel had more people. They were bigger. So you would think it would be natural and proper for Asa to make some allies, which is what he's about to do. It seems like the right thing to do. And so this is what he does. He negotiates a deal with the Syrians in verses 18 and 19. It says, Then Asa took all the silver and gold that was left in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the treasuries of the king's house and delivered them into the hand of his servants. And King Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad, the son of Tabramon, the son of Hezion, king of Syria, who dwelt in Damascus, saying, Let there be a treaty between you and me, as there was between my father and your father. 
See, I have sent you a present of silver and gold. Come and break your treaty with Basha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. So he goes and he creates, or yeah, he does create it. He creates this treaty with the king of Syria. And he has to pay him a lot of money to do it, right? Well, to come up with all this cash, he needed uh, to create this alliance. Asa ended up basically plundering, giving away his treasury. All his treasury. It says, Ben-Hadad took the money in verse 20 and sent it uh, to the captains of his armies against the cities of Israel. He attacked... I have went over and over my head on how to pronounce this one. Eljon, Ejon, Dan, Abel, Beth, Maka, and all Chinneroth with all the land of Naphtali. And then in verse 21, we see where soon Syria attacks the northern kingdom and it has the desired effect that they wanted. It says, when Basha heard it, he stopped building Ramah. He stopped building the city, the city that was the blockade and remained in Terza. So Basha's retreat here it had the benefit stopping the blockade. It appears like it's going to be successful. It also had the benefit of allowing Judah to take the building materials that they had used in building that city of Ramah and now get those building materials and use them for their own good to build their own cities. So we see that in verse 22. It says, Then King Asa made a proclamation throughout all Judah. None was exempted, and they took away the stones and timber of Ramah, which Basha had used for building and with them King Asa built Geba of Benjamin and Mizpah. So he took those building supplies and used them to build his own cities, right? I mean, it looks like everything's working out great. It looks like now Judah is stronger than ever before, right? Well, I don't know about that. Were they stronger than ever before? Well, let's analyze this a little bit. <clears throat> In order to buy the favor of the Syrians, right? What did Asa have to do? He had to plunder his own treasures. He had to plunder his own silver and his own gold, the gold from the house of God. He had taken it to the house of God originally, and now he's taking it out of the house of God to buy off a Gentile king, a pagan king. Then he used this stolen treasure, yeah, he used it to, to persuade that king there of Syria to break this covenant that he had with Israel, the northern kingdom. And so instead of trusting the Lord for protection, look what he did. He resorted to bribery. He resorted to theft. Theft from the house of God, of all places, and deception. He's bribing. He's deceiving. He's stealing. And it was all because he acted out of fear for his enemies rather than faith in his God. That's what he's doing. And a lot of times we all do that. That's a temptation for every single one of us. When the pressure is on and trouble comes like it did for Asa here, it's easy for us to turn to our own resources, right? It's easy for us to turn to our own ideas and our own plans and our own plots instead of trusting entirely in the grace of God. We're all guilty of that. Just like Asa, we sometimes try to do things our way instead of God's way. And we'll always get in a mess when we do that, just like Asa did. See, the consequences of spiritual compromise like that's always disastrous. It was disastrous for Asa. It'll be disastrous for us. And so rather than receiving tribute from Gentile kings like Solomon had, you remember Solomon had Gentile kings bringing tribute to him. 
because he was doing things by the will of God. Instead of that, Asa ends up giving all his treasure away to a Gentile king, king of Syria. Well, the king of Syria proceeded to attack Israel. He proceeded to claim part of Israel's territory for himself. And that meant, and this is very ironic, that Asa really ended up funding the takeover of part of the promised land. Asa gave that pagan king the money to be able to take over part of God's land because he did not trust the Lord in the matter and took it into his own hands. And this all took place, again, because Asa trusted his own resources rather than believing the promises of God. This is spoke of over in a parallel account of this in Chronicles. According to Chronicles, when Asa made this foolish bargain with this Syrian king, a prophet came to him. And he came to him and he condemned him for relying on the king of Syria rather than on the king of kings. It says in 2 Chronicles 16, 7-9, that at that time Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you have relied on the king of Syria and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Syria has escaped from your hand, where the Ethiopians and the Lubim uh, not... Were the Ethiopians and the Lubim not a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the whole... I'm going to get this right in a second. Yet because you relied on the Lord, He delivered them into your hand. In other words, He's saying, there were two greater armies than this that were threatening you, but you relied on the Lord and you defeated them. But you didn't rely on the Lord for this Syrian army. He says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show Himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to Him. In this you have done foolishly. Therefore, from now on you shall have wars. So because he didn't trust the Lord in this matter with, the, with these Syrians, from that time forward, the Syrians were going to be a constant threat to Asa and his kingdom. He had defeated those greater armies, but he wasn't going to defeat them. Because he didn't rely on the Lord. Well, the book of Kings ends its account of Asa's life and kingship with the following summary in verses 23 and 24. It says, The rest of all the acts of Asa, uh, all his might, all that he did, and the cities which he built, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? But in the time of his old age he was diseased in his feet, so Asa rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. Then Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his place. So the question is, how should we evaluate the life of Asa? Was he a hero or was he a villain? Was he a saint or was he a sinner? Well, he was a little bit of both, right? We can't really put him into one, get one category. He wanted to follow God, and sometimes he did, but there were also times he made spiritual compromises that went against what the Lord said to do. Right? In other words, he was just like us. He was just like us. He was a saint that still struggled with sin. That's how we evaluate Asa. Well, one way that we can look at his life is that he shows us our need for a more perfect king to be our savior, right? 
as this story ends, what are we still waiting on? We're still waiting on a perfect king because he's not it. We see things wrong in his life. We see sin in his life. Although he brought some good reformation, he didn't bring final and full reformation to the people of God. He was an early reformer, yes. He was an early good king, yes. And later there's going to be some even better kings than him. We're going to see kings like Joash who repaired the temple. We're going to see kings like Hezekiah who finally did remove those high places where people were going to worship. But even those kings were flawed. The only perfect king is the true son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so at at this point, that's who we're still waiting on. He is the perfect king. He alone is the one who has the power to tear down all of our idols. He alone is the one who has the power to give us the ability to have that true costly discipleship that we were talking about. And he alone is the one who has the power to protect us from these soul-destroying compromises that we get entangled in, like Asa did. So like the rest of Israel's kings, Asa teaches us to put our trust in a greater king, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's also another thing we need to look at in evaluating his life, and that's to point out this, that even for all his failures, he was accepted by God. Verse 11 compares him favorably with King David. David is the royal standard for righteousness, right? David, it is said, was the man after God's own heart. And verse 11 compares Asa to him. And Asa was a king after David's heart, it says. And that's just another way of saying that Asa was also a man after God's heart. He was a man who sought after God. Verse 14 gives him this high praise, this high commendation. It says, Nevertheless, Asa's heart was loyal to the Lord all of his days. Now that verse right there, out of all this, gives me more hope than any of the rest of this. It should give all of us hope. It should give hope to anyone who wants to live for God, but still continues to struggle with sin, right? And that's all of us. Every single one of us fit in that category. Every single saved person wants to live for God, but we still struggle with sin. And the fact of the matter is, the closer we get to Christ and the more we become like Him, the more sin we realize we have. That's right. See, Asa, even though he was sinned, Asa was accepted by God. And that is a clear testimony to us that sinners are saved by grace and not by works. That's right. You see, although he was far from perfect, God regarded his heart as true. It says his heart was loyal to the Lord all the days of his life. See, God recognized that Asa's faith was sincere and that his desire to serve him was genuine and that it was true. And so God accepted him as he was, not on the basis of perfect merit, but on the basis of God's own forgiving grace. That's why he accepted him. And that's the only hope any of us have. Our salvation does not depend on our service for God. Although when we're saved, we'll want to serve Him. Our salvation does not depend on that service. It depends on His grace in accepting us just as we are through the perfect kingship of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And on His perfect atoning work. That's what it depends on. You see, a true heart is a heart that trusts and the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what a true heart is all about. So we can't deny our sin. 
None of us can deny our sin. But our Savior can give us hearts that are true to Him all the days of our lives, just like Asa. So that when we're laid to rest, we'll rest with all of our spiritual fathers, like Asa did. We'll rest in the eternal city of David's true son, his eternal son, just like Asa did. The city of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I ask you, do you have that kind of heart? Do you have a true heart? A heart that is covered in the righteousness of Christ. Have you put your trust in Christ so that that you can have that new heart that God promises to give us? Uh, He says He'll take away our old stony heart and He'll give us a heart of flesh. You put your faith and trust in Christ and you don't have to worry. You'll have a true heart. Just like Asa.